Pinkney Pinchback. I don't know if any of you know who Pinkney Pinchback is. I mean, it sounds like a fictional name, right? Like it's in a spy novel or something like that. Nope, it's a real person. Anybody heard that name before? You know what Pinkney Pinchback is known for? All right, you're going to learn a little something today then. Pinkney Pinchback was the first black man to serve as a state governor in America. What's notable about that was the state was Louisiana in the Deep South, and the year was 1872. I mean, not too long after the Civil War had ended. Not long after, in that state, black people could be owned as property. And here was one who served as the governor. It's one of those milestone events for civil rights. But there's a bit more to the story than that. Here's how it goes, that Pinckney Pinchback was elected to the state senate in Louisiana in 1868. And that happened as a result of the Reconstruction Act of 1867. Northern Republicans who wanted to integrate the southern states back in, but wanted to do that in a way that really affirmed the abolition of slavery in the Reconstruction Act of 1867, gave all black men the right not only to vote, but to hold political office. And so in 1868, pretty much overnight, the makeup of state legislatures in the South changed because suddenly this entire population that had no voice before could vote. And so in the Louisiana legislature in 1868, Pinkney Pinchback was one of seven black men who was elected to the Senate that year. And there were so many more within that party that were elected that they actually took the majority of the Senate. This was the Republican Party, but if you know your history here, Abraham Lincoln was the first president because the Repu- of the Republican Party because the Republican Party was brand new back then in the 1860s. They had just formed. So just like that, states in the Deep South, which were 100% Southern Democrat, all of a sudden had this overwhelming influx of these brand new Democrats. And they were by far and away the freed slaves. And also, Northern Republicans who traveled South because they saw opportunities there to advance their own or some of them traveled south for actual genuine humanitarian causes to help rebuild the south. But there was this influx of northern Republicans who went to the south, and in 1868, it swept over the state legislatures. And Pinckney Pinchback was elected to the Senate. Not only was he elected to the Senate in Louisiana, but he also was appointed as the Senate pro temp, the leader, the majority leader of the Senate in Louisiana. Something brand new in that time for someone like him wouldn't be imaginable. As the story goes on then, in 18, we fast forward a few years, right? In 1871, the lieutenant governor suddenly passes away. And so by Louisiana Constitution, the Senate majority leader automatically becomes the lieutenant governor. Now Pinckney Pinchback is the lieutenant governor. That's sort of like the vice president of states, right? The, the second in command under the governor in 1871. The, the governor at that time, who was also elected as a Republican, a white man whose name was Henry Warmoth, and he served along with Henry Warmoth there. Well, there was also an election that took place then 
in 18, the next year in 1872. An election for the U.S. Senate. And from Louisiana, there were two candidates going for the U.S. Senate seat, one of them a Democrat, the other a Republican. So they had the vote and tallied that, and the Louisiana State Board of Elections called the race for the Democratic candidate who was running for the U.S. Senate. Republican legislatures were not happy with that. So those who were in the Republican legislature in Louisiana. The, uh, the Republican governor, Warmoth, certified the results of the election commission in Louisiana. The Republican legislatures formed their own election board because they said the election was fraudulent. True story. They wanted their Republican governor, Warmoth, to sign their election results and overturn that election because of allegations of fraud. Warmoth wouldn't do that. He said, I'm going to certify the election that comes from our state's election board, an election board that he appointed because he was the Republican governor at that time. The Republican legislature didn't stop there. They weren't happy. They filed articles of impeachment against Governor Warmoth because he wouldn't go along with their overturn the election. So Article 53 of the Louisiana State Legislature stipulates that when a governor is under investigation for impeachment that's been filed, he cannot continue to serve as governor. The lieutenant governor had to step in during that time. And that is the reason why, on December 9, 1872, Pinckney Pinchback was sworn in as the first black man to serve as a state governor in this country because of a Republican legislature who weren't happy with election results and wanted that overturned. The governor, uh, this was the end of the year, and the governorship was about to turn anyway, so even though he was the first black man to serve as a state governor in Louisiana, Pinckney Pinchback served from December 9, 1872, until January 13, 1873, a total of six weeks he was the governor and was never elected back to it after that. So he goes down in history as being the first black man to serve as a state governor in this country, but it didn't happen by what we might consider these righteous means of civil rights advancement, right? It came as a result of some rather tough infighting and conflict and disagreement And perhaps it reminds us today that as we hear stories of what happens in our country today and we think, and maybe some people say, these are times like no other times. I can't remember when there was division and fighting like this. You know what? I think all of this has happened before, pretty much. It's a reminder for us today that in our search for living in times of peace, I don't think we've ever had that kind of time that lasts very long, right? That we've always been in this state of struggling a bit to find peace and what that means. Well, today we're continuing with our series on spiritual fruit and talking about peace. And remember, this comes from Galatians Galatians 5, where we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, which says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And it lists all those fruits from there. Gentleness, 
self-control. Against such things, there are no law. And we're working our way through that. Today, we're up to peace and what it means then for us to be people of peace, especially in a world where we're reminded it's so hard for us to find peace. And it seems like it's always been that way for us to find that. So a few words about peace today and what it means to be people of peace. This comes from John chapter 14, okay? John 14, I'm beginning at verse 15, the words of Jesus. He says this, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me, because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Peace, then. The spiritual fruit of peace and what it means for us to live as people of peace in a world that seems so far away from having a sense of peace about it. Well, the first thing that we need to do is, is maybe give a little context around this passage, these words of Jesus. So I mean, the 30,000-foot view over this in John chapter 14, this takes place during the time of the Last Supper. Right? This is the last day before Jesus will be betrayed and arrested and crucified. This is, in John's gospel, this is the scene where Jesus goes about and, and washes his disciples' feet, right? Serves them in that way. That's what takes place here, just back a chapter in John 13. And then he begins teaching them at this meal that they're having, at this Last Supper, all of these teachings that are recorded for us here in John's gospel in chapters 13 and 14. And Jesus gives some pretty hard teachings there. He's talking about how he's going to be betrayed how he's going to die. He talks about how his own disciples are going to disown him. These are hard things for his disciples to hear and listen to. 
And then within this teaching, Jesus also talks about the Holy Spirit, that another will come. John uses back and forth these terms of Holy Spirit and advocate, right? The advocate whom my Father will send in my name. So he's, he's trying to get the disciples to look ahead a little bit as well to see what's coming next, the Holy Spirit coming to them. This is one of those passages in John, along with so many other passages, especially throughout the New Testament, that show us the Trinity. Right? It, it explains to us something about who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God reveals himself to be Trinity in who he is himself. You read that language all through this passage that we looked at just today, right? That Jesus says, I'm in my Father, my Father is in me. I'm going to ask my Father to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be sent by the Father in my name to you. You get this idea of God, the three-in-one, the Trinity. It's one of those mysteries that I think is kind of hard for us to wrap our head around, that we have one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how does that exactly work? That's a little bit beyond our ability to know. But yet, the Bible reveals that to us, that even though we cannot fully understand, this is who God is. So that God in himself embodies, flourishes, thrives in perfect love and grace. Right? That God himself thrives and flourishes in that. That the Father gives perfect love to the Son and the Spirit and receives perfect love from the Son and the Spirit. The Son gives love to the Father and the Spirit and the Son receives love from the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit gives love to the Father and the Son. The Spirit receives love from the Father and the Son. That God himself and who God is flourishes and thrives in perfect love because that's who God is. And then, in this passage, God's Trinitarian love is given to the disciples, right? That Jesus says, my peace I give to you. This overflowing of flourishing love among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus says, you get to be a part of that now too. I'm giving that to you. This is something that's coming your way. We are a part of God's peace in that way. Out of this perfect love that flourishes and thrives within the Trinity, Jesus gives that to his disciples. Peace. Peace is one of those things that I would identify as one of those central themes in the Bible. Right? That, that it's one of those things that I would put on my top five list. Right? If you were to make, well, you know, what is the Bible about? If somebody asked you, what's the Bible about? And you had to make a list of just themes of things like that. Yeah, we would say things like, oh, the Bible, it's about love, it's about grace, it's about faith, it's about covenant, and, and I would round out that top five list with peace. The Bible is about peace. It's one of the major themes that takes place in Scripture. But the biblical word for peace is shalom, and that comes to us in ways that, well, I talk about that often, don't I? 
Well, because it's one of those major themes of the Bible. So that's why I talk about it often. Shalom, peace. But I often point to what the Reformed scholar Nicholas Wolterstorff says about shalom, that, that he suggests the better English word would be flourishing, thriving. That's shalom. So this flourishing and thriving love that exists within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a picture of shalom, divine shalom, peace. And in this passage, Jesus says, that's what I'm giving to you. This flourishing and thriving blessing of God that comes as shalom in that way. So it comes to us in ways that is revealed throughout Scripture, right? You remember, I mean, going back to Christmas time, right? Uh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and the angels come to the shepherds, and the announcement of the shepherds to, or the announcements of the angels to the shepherds, peace on earth, shalom, the, the flourishing, thriving love of God is here, is here now. It's that theme that is sort of woven all throughout Scripture in various ways. And it's the thing that we sort of see at the bookends, right? In Genesis, when God creates the world, it's a world free from sin, and it is a world that flourishes and thrives. It's a world of perfect shalom. And if you go all the way to the end, to Revelation, where God makes all things new again, the picture you see there of the, the resurrected new creation is a picture of shalom, flourishing, thriving. That when Jesus came to save the world, yes, it's about resurrection. Yes, it's about eternal life. But that eternal life and that resurrection finds its culmination, its high point in the restoration of shalom. That's what everything is pointing towards. That's what salvation truly means for us, to be resurrected into God's perfectly restored shalom. That's why I keep going back to it again and again and again because we need to keep hearing and reminding ourselves of that again and again. That's what we were made for. That's why we exist. That's why God has created each one of us to flourish and, th and thrive in his shalom. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing that, though, right? That flourishing, that thriving, what that looks like. I mean, we, we tend to think of peace in different ways. I mean, in, in our... English language, our understanding of peace is not so much, here's what peace is, but here, here's what peace is not, right? Well, peace means there's not war. There, there's an absence of conflict or violence. We'll put it that way, that when there's an absence of conflict or violence or turmoil, we call that peace, but, but shalom doesn't stop there. Right? Shalom is not so much about the absence of conflict or turmoil, but, but rather it's about the active presence of God's flourishing and thriving. So that even in a world where 
some conflict and turmoil still exists around us, and we know it does, we see it, there can still be shalom that shows up in various places among that. I mean, in some ways, in Old Testament Israel, this is evident just in the name Israel. You know where that name comes from? It's Jacob. You remember Jake, the scene in Genesis that Jacob wrestles with God all night before he meets his brother Esau. And at the end of that wrestling match, when he won't let that angel go, he says, I won't let you go till you bless me. And this angel from God blesses him and says, your name's not Jacob anymore. Now your name is Israel. And the entire nation carries on that name. The name Israel means struggles with God, right? wrestles with God. That part of their identity all through the Old Testament was conflict, struggle, wrestling. And yet, shalom is given to them. So shalom is not necessarily the absence of these struggles and this conflict, but rather it is the active presence of something else along with struggle and conflict, the presence of God's flourishing and thriving and what that looks like. How does that show up for us in our world today? How would we define that as coming to us? You see, when, when we act in ways that enable others to thrive and flourish, that shows us something about the spiritual fruit of peace, right? When we act in ways that enable others to flourish and thrive, that shows us a glimpse of the spiritual fruit of peace. Maybe we think of peace then as if we're going to bear the spiritual fruit of peace, it means that we need to somehow live in a world that has no conflict whatsoever, I'm afraid that until the day God comes and makes all things new again, we're going to live in a world that has conflict and struggle. But how do we live as people of peace even within that world? People who can bear that spiritual fruit of peace where others may be able to thrive and flourish as God has created them and enabled them to do, even in that world around us. It takes something that I'm going to call the posture of peace, right? The, that we live as people who have a posture of peace. And we do that in ways that show up into other people's lives as they exist around us. When we live as people who have a posture of peace, we live as people who then position our lives to embrace every little glimpse of shalom that we see about us. Every little glimpse of shalom that we see around us. How can we find that in our world? How can that show up in places where we see it and know it? And we can take small nudges towards that, knowing that we live in a world that, that is not absent of conflict. But can we still call out those little moments where we see these tiny pieces of flourishing and thriving and give people just a little bit of a nudge in that direction? 
What does that look like? How does that work? Because we know it's a world in which there's still conflict. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this in Ephesians. This comes from Ephesians 2, all right? So this is New Testament, again, but, but it's Paul talking about peace, but he's talking about peace in a church that's filled with conflict, all right? This is what he says about that, Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which he, by which he put to death their hostility He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. You see, Paul's calling us out for us too, that we live in this world where, yeah, there's still conflict. That church in the New Testament there in Ephesus was a church that had conflict. But still within that, Paul calls out the shalom that Jesus gives us and that we now live in this posture of peace. A posture of peace. The way way we position and hold ourselves to embrace every little glimpse of shalom flourishing that we can find in the world around us. When we do that, we live as people who bear the spiritual fruit of peace. Now, you know what? I I know sometimes we hear these really great stories about that, right? If if you talk at any length of time with Arv Tapp, you're going to hear stories about students who come out of the potter's house or or those inmates who come through 70 times 7 life recovery. These people for whom had nothing about them that could prosper, but were given what they needed with the right encouragement and tools and mentors to find flourishing and thriving. And these are huge stories, right? If you show up here on our Tuesday nights when we do our life skills class, you hear some of those stories of people who come with nothing, their lives are shattered, but they walk alongside others here who give them the tools needed to begin to thrive and flourish again. All of these things are sort of those glimpses at the spiritual fruit of peace which allows others to thrive and posture. But don't get lost in those big stories because that's not really where it meets people in their lives. Because even though there may be these huge stories that take place of people whose lives have completely turned around, that happens only because 
there are certain individuals here and there who maybe just give a little glimpse, a small nudge, and it just keeps happening over and over. Those tiny things that are before us that we do to enable others to thrive and flourish. And maybe it doesn't look like much. In fact, maybe it doesn't look like anything at all. In fact, maybe you're dealing with people for whom their lives are so crushed and upside down and backwards that you wonder, is is my little bit of trying to do something for this person even helping at all? Because maybe it wears us out. Well, those little glimpses and small nudges toward shalom are enough. Those little things that you do day in and day out to help and serve and care for an aging spouse or parent who suffers some of the effects of aging, those little things are a nudge of the spiritual fruit of peace just in that little way of helping that person thrive just a little bit in that day and in that time. That's the spiritual fruit of peace. When you step in and do what you can to care for grandkids, even though maybe it doesn't look like much or feel like much, it bears the spiritual fruit of peace because you're giving just a little glimpse and a little nudge towards flourishing and thriving. If you're a business owner and you take care of your employees and some days your employees want to make you just bang your head against the wall, but you still try to do the best by them so that they can do their jobs well, so that they can flourish and thrive in what God has given them. It's a little nudge and a glimpse towards bearing the spiritual fruit of peace in the lives of others. Students at school, when you see that other person who's maybe excluded or left out or made to feel like they don't belong, and and all you do is just say, hey, come sit and have lunch with me today or be a part of our group or, or just give them a kind word. That little glimpse or nudge that helps that person thrive and flourish just a little bit in that day, in that moment. That is bearing the spiritual fruit of peace. You see where I'm getting at? Every single one of us here today has that in us. Every single one of us, even if you feel like, I don't have anything big to give to this, you do. And I would say that for you in your lives, when you start to think about it, it's there and it's there every day. Those little nudges and glimpses that we give towards other people so that just a little bit, they can flourish and they can thrive in that day and what God gives them. We bear the spiritual fruit of peace when we do that. And we don't do that because it earns us any points with God, right? We don't do that because, all right, that's the rule and the command now. We do that because God himself has overflowed his shalom into us, his people. It becomes who we are and what we do and how we carry that forward with others. So may we be people who bear the spiritual fruit of peace even as we live embraced in the peace of God. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the gift of your word and the way that you remind us in your word that you are a God of peace. 
God, we're sorry for the times when uh, maybe we've been the ones who've contributed to conflict and made things worse. Remind us once again that you are the God who comes with shalom, that we may flourish and thrive. Remind us once again that even those tiny little things that we do in that direction, those things count, that you use each one of us for your shalom. Thank you for that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.